the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody from lovely New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have been talking over the uh, past couple of episodes about various issues concerning religion, creationism, evolution, and the types of arguments that tend to be mobilized in justification of each of those perspectives. And, of course, they are very interesting. And as most of us know, the question of religion and the question of evolution and natural selection, these are issues that have surfaced for many, many years. They came to the fore in the early 20th century, certainly in North America, with the Scopes Monkey Trial that was a very, very widely heralded uh, trial in the South and drew questions as to how we educate our children and how we go about developing explanations for justifying who we are, how we became what we are, and how we really can start to mesh the types of beliefs that human groups have brought together over the course of time. And certainly at that time, in the early part of the 20th century, the standing model was that Western civilization and the Western way of thinking was really the world standard. Uh, in recent years, uh, specifically towards the end of the 20th century, I think we have expanded our frontiers and we've given certainly a lot of credence to cultures and civilizations that may not have left written records, but were certainly part of the emergence of the human condition all over the world. Um, that entire concept of Western supremacy, which is entrenched also in a certain amount of racialism and racism, if you will, is one that hopefully will continue to melt away as we start to appreciate diversity and as we start to appreciate various parts of the world that have developed differently, not necessarily in a slower, at a slower rate or a different rate, but certainly differently in terms of priorities and how, uh, hunt, how groups 
came together and how groups put themselves into the world and developed their own identities, both collectively and individually. But that having been said, we still always get down to the probably the most important work of literature in the West, and that is, of course, the Bible, because it has been at the center of most controversies involving where we got to how we did today and what we believe and what we don't believe about our growth and emergence and ultimate fate. I think that we discussed many of these questions in our last episode when we uh, addressed some of the major questions that creationists have versus some of the perspectives that evolutionists and scientists look at, and specifically scientists who have largely assumed and adopted the mantle of the Darwinian tradition. And one of the aspects that really seems to be at the core of the differences, in addition to the basic question of do you have faith or don't you have faith, which, as we discussed last time, is something you either believe in or you don't believe in, but whether you want to talk about the justification of these explanations that are grounded, shall we say, in fact, then what we really need to look at is the entire issue of time and space. And in terms of time, we try to explain the Bible as well as other natural situations or situations, <clears throat> again, of, uh, for lack of a better word, evolution, but certainly systematic, let's call it systematic emergence, uh, if we don't want to use sort of the broad cover plate uh, and labeling of these uh, various phenomena. But one of the issues is time. And time, if you can set it in a fixed perspective, is really one of the core arguments and one of the central linchpins in trying to understand how we get from A to B, how we uh, essentially went from an earlier life form, if that's what you believe, into a modern life form and uh, without sort of just assigning it to a creation or a certain event that is registered in the earliest portions of the Old Testament in, in the uh, book of Genesis. And in that connection, I think it's really very important to look at how we can affix time. How can we assign time? How can we say that a certain event took place at a fixed point in time? And the logic would have produce the result that if you can affix a time to an event, whether it be in terms of a biblical time frame or a more long, drawn-out, protracted evolutionary time frame that essentially establishes continuity from all the life forms, beginning with um, the one-cell amoebas and the earliest uh, forms of life, many of which are no longer registered in the record. But if we want to do that, we have to be able to measure time. And so if you accept the uh, biblical creationist ideology, it says essentially that, and again, depending on which variant of the Bible you're looking at and which uh, saga you want to take, take hold of, that would occur between 6,000 and 4,000 years ago. Um, 
And how do you affix these uh, chronologies or these sequences of time in any kind of a framework that makes some sort of sense? Well, what we do is in the emergence of dating techniques and the ways that we have of actually measuring time through a variety of different methods that have um, been around for, for long periods of time, actually, um, is to look at absolute dating, which is dating fixed materials, and relative dating, which essentially gives you variance of um, de developments in the human condition that are serially related to each other. In other words, one comes after the other, comes after the other in almost a linear pattern of development. And this will pull us into the biblical situation to some degree because we can see a very nice fit of relative dating to biblical events, especially those in the past 5,000 years. And the reason we can do that is because we have very serious and significant developments in the uh, changes in technology in the cradles of civilization that we can document sequentially. For example, uh, if we adopt and this is where, for example, we have a lovely convergence of biblical sequences and actual evolutionary sequences, for lack of a better term, because on the evolutionary side of things, we will say, okay, there has been a progressive development in Western civilization. And that is largely reflected in the biblical sequences. So that, for example, if you adopt a purely scientific perspective on the events that did take place in the ostensible creation of, uh, not creation of the world, but the emergence of various civilizations in the world after 5,000 BP, 5,000 years ago, then you'll see that there are certain technological advances that are registered by the archaeological record and reflected in the biblical accounts. And I would say that the di dividing point here is the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age is, by archaeological and scientific standards, largely assumed to have taken hold around 3,000 years before Christ, or before the Common Era, if you don't want to use that, the uh, BC terminology. And if you s assume that the Bible... Uh, assumes creation sometime before that, then these kinds of emergences and these kinds of developments largely are intersecting. And it's, it's kind of interesting because once you get to that time frame, the Bronze Age equals the earliest phases of biblical accounting, you see a really nice chronology. And um, biblical scholars who have looked at these in great detail, established that in the book of Kings, in the Old Testament, the sequence of civilizations and the sequence of the kingship and the hierarchies are actually measured in traditional years that conform 
to a benchmark that is actually set up in the Book of Kings. So if you use that as a reference point, then things that happened before fit in because the actual numbers of years fit appropriately, and things that happened afterward also fit in. And that would take us very, very logically into the, uh, the king de- kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judea which are essentially um, kingdoms that have emerged in the latter bronze and into the early iron period. And if you try to lock in the dates of those developments, you'll see a very, very nice combination that looks at these techno- that, that actually sets the technological sequence up with the biblical sequence. And the names of the kings tend to merge and the date number of years for each reign seem to work quite nicely not exactly but quite nicely and they seem to merge quite well and the reason we can say that is because of relative dating let's assume that the bible is an index of relative dating another index of relative dating would be um advances in technology so that if you look at these developments over the past uh five uh five thousand years you'll see that for example um uh, bronze tools gave rise to to iron tools and the pottery which was used for cooking and for vessels and storage those those pottery signatures become increasingly pottery technologies excuse me get increasingly more elaborate as you go through time and if you want to sort of conflate these and bring them in in line with the kingships you will see that all that works quite well so that if you can look at for example the egyptian chronology and you can look at the mesopotamian chronology and you can see that the advances in pottery making and the elaborate designs that occur do follow a certain linear pattern and you find more sophisticated pottery types more diverse pottery types and better decorated types of pottery as you go through time and they do date to within the time frame that is uh, registered in the biblical text the question that becomes much more important is what do we know about the time frames that come before that did anything come before that, or was the creation something that really did occur in several days? And we'll get into that question after these words. Stay tuned. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing 
Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing... A couple of issues uh, related to and bearing on the evolution versus creationism controversy, some of which we discussed last time, but one of which we did not get into, and that is looking at the convergence, actually, of the biblical and archaeological records, if you will, for the past 5,000 years. Again, assuming that the creationist time frame for the creation was between four and 6,000 years ago. And what we're seeing and what the archaeology is showing us is that at a critical point in time, the emergence of complex societies, the evolution or the emergence of high technology, higher technology, the use of metals, specifically bronze around 3000 BCE and iron uh, around 1000 BCE in the lands of the Bible in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and uh, and the Israelite area, you are seeing that the records are remarkably similar. What happens, what happens to the time frames and the accounting before that time period? Now, archaeologists and evolutionists are basically saying that our origins are readily, readily trackable to about 5 million years ago. Let's leave that aside for a moment and look at how that record might conflate or coincide with the creationist myth. And what, I call it a myth, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for offending anybody if I might have done so, but let's, let's, uh, let's recalibrate here and call it with that version, if we will. Let's look at that. One of my listeners brought up a very interesting point last time in the wake of the previous discussion and said, well, if you really want to look at this in any kind of a holistic way, and if you want to reconcile the accounts of the Bible with, for lack of anything better, we'll call the fossil record or the, the evolutionary tracking and the evolutionary scale of development, let's consider the seven days of creation as God years. 
it's an argument that has held sway for a very long time, and it was used in the early 20th century, even as early as the 19th century, the latter 19th century post-Darwin, when the arguments that Darwin had made were starting to get a certain amount of attention in scientific circles at a time when religion really was a very, very major sway and a very, very major and the most compelling organizational framework for human society in most of the Western world. And as a result, uh, those types of explanations certainly seem to fit and certainly seem to reconcile situations that were otherwise very, very difficult to bridge. And so let's consider a God year, thousands of years, or maybe even tens of thousands of years. And that's a nice explanation. And it's one that certainly holds held sway for a long time and still does today. Many people do believe that. But the question is, if we want to look at the evidence, and we need to look at the evidence in terms of how can we get back to our original thought, our original question, which was how do we date things? Well, then we have to look at what's not, what's not, not, we have to turn our attention for what we had called relative dating. And the relative dating, as I said before, is really quite nice for the last 5,000 years. Again, to summarize very briefly, we can look at the Bible, biblical accounts, we can look at developments in technology, we can look at those time frames and they mesh very nicely. There have been recently some very interesting divergences, but those are divergences on the order of hundreds and not thousands of years. So they mesh quite well. However, let's look at the entire question of not relative dating, but absolute dating. Absolute dating is the ability to look at an organic or a structural component of the elements that make up the universe and allow us to measure the age of materials by a process called radioactivity. And what that means is if you hearken back to your chemistry high school um, instruction, you will find out that the explanations for radioactive dating, radiometric dating as we call it, are really quite interesting and not very difficult to absorb. And they're based on the fact that the atom is composed of isotopes. Isotopes are variants of atoms that are either stable or unstable. So that, for example, a carbon atom has various, uh, has, has three primary isotopes. One is carbon-12, one is carbon-13, and one is carbon-14. And the, the difference in these is that the number of neutrons and protons changes so that um, the neutrons are the variable. The carbon atom has six protons and seven neutrons. That would be carbon-13. And it has six neutrons and six um, protons, it's carbon-12. And it, if it has six protons and eight um, neutrons, then it is carbon-14. Now, in this equation and in this mix, carbon-14 is not a stable isotope. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are. So what that says is that once the organic material dies 
and it's no longer producing any carbon. Then the unstable isotope, which is carbon-14, starts to um, dispel its composition, and it starts to essentially deteriorate. And it deteriorates because of exposure to cosmic rays. And the way we calculate the uh, amount of deterioration is that we observe its half-life because the proportion of carbon-14 with respect to carbon-12 and carbon-13 changes. And we can fix that because we can measure the rate of decay. When we measure the rate of decay and we, we understand that the ratios change, then we could work backwards and we could see, okay, we know when that decay started and that fixes the age of the organic material that died, and we can identify the time that it died, and it's really well set up. The half-life, which is the time of what, that it takes for one half of the isotope to decay, and then ongoing decaying and decaying and decaying until it, it's almost infinitesimal um, and approaches infinity as a rate of decay, then we can measure this because we know that the rate of decay for carbon, it's been measured, and it can be measured scientifically. It's a, uh, inv it's a uh, strategy, a technique rather, that was developed in the middle 1950s by a, a gentleman by the name of Libby. Then we can work backwards and we can identify when that organic material stops. So if you have, for example, an ancient fireplace, you have a piece of carbon that is recovered in that fireplace, a piece of burnt wood, a piece of uh, burnt plant material, you put that into for, anal for analysis to measure how much of it is left and what the how much the proportions have changed over the course of time you can figure out how old that fireplace could have been once you realize and you find artifacts in association with that fireplace of a certain type then you can come to the conclusion or it's a logical conclusion that the people that were responsible for burning the wood there, for making a fire, for uh, cooking food, for processing meat, those people lived a certain amount, a certain number of years ago. And this revolutionized the entire field of archaeology because it allowed us to take... Um, ancient features, ancient uh, activity areas that had organic components in them, a fireplace, a processing station, uh, even natural events that may have occurred, a, a clearance of a, an agricultural field or a pre-agricultural field. And it allows us to measure and to identify exactly when that event took place. And this strategy has been around now for over 70 years. And with constant recalibration, because our techniques constantly get better, we are able to identify that essentially any potentially cultural feature or cult evidence of cultural activity that goes back to about 50,000 years ago, which is the uh, upper limit of measuring uh, radiocarbon decay, can be dated. And so when we find fireplaces that are older than 6,000 years ago, uh, for example, that may have been um, made by Cro-Magnon peoples in, in uh, 
Homo early, uh, early Homo sapiens sapiens in Western Europe, in France, in the area of the uh, the cave writings, uh, the cave um, inscriptions in the Dordogne Valley, as an example, then we know that those people lived 25, 30,000 years ago. And in the same way that we look at the coincidence of stone tools and radiocarbon dates that we find in those, let's assume for sake of discussion, 25,000 years, uh, 25,000 year old activity areas, we will find the same association of artifacts and burnt charcoal as we will find in deposits or archaeological features that date to biblical times. And as we said before, the biblical record seems to be very well suited and very well set up to correspond, to make a correspondence between certain artifact types and the antiquity of certain types of activity areas. So if we see one that's about 3,000 years old, say in an ancient temple in which fire might have been burning, let's project back to 25,000 years old, uh, years ago, and we found stone tools of a certain style that conform to burnt charcoal, burnt fireplaces that are 25,000 years old. So you say, okay, well, if that's the case, um, it could just be a single incident, it could be a single type of situation, and archaeology tells us, because we've had so many convergences of specific tool types and specific types of activity areas, that the, um, the probability of those types of associations occurring by chance are absolutely in, uh, infinitesimal that they, they can't have occurred by chance because the same tool types are associated with burnt charcoal records of a certain time frames. It's replicated all over certain t regions of the world. And based on this type of conflation of checking artifact records with the radiocarbon records, we can actually build up chronologies not only for time, but also across space. So that we can isolate certain stone tool industries in France, I'm using this example for right now, that are common across much of that country, into Spain, into Germany, and we're seeing these types of if you want to call them convergent or conflated coincidences, if you will, they are patterned. So now it's no longer a question of chance or probability. It seems to be a recurrence that is a marker for human activity and, by extension, human stages of development for 25, for anywhere from, say, um, a hundred, no, a hundred, two hundred years ago, all the way back to 40,000 and 50,000 years ago, based on the radiocarbon record. And we will talk a little bit more about radiometric dating and what that means for understanding and expanding our interpretations of how long the human condition extended right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a, an episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology that expands on our last week's program where we discussed the entire question of creationism and evolution. And it's a magnificent and fantastic topic, and it's one that I find especially compelling because, in large measure, because of the significance of the Bible and the effects that it's had on the, hor- on the course of the human condition. And before we get into more detailed aspects of dating, I do want to say that one of the most fascinating aspects of biblical accounts and the actual chronology that the creationists uh, conform and uh, accept is this critical window of 6,000 to 4,000 years ago. And let's take away the creation itself, but let's talk about the developments that happened not just in the biblical world, but all over the world about 5,000 years ago. And we touched upon this last week. One of the amazing elements of this is that the Bible brings attention to that window of time that we have been able to demonstrate recently can be registered by absolute dating in the radiocarbon method because there's a wonderful convergence of material uh, archaeological and artifact records and the radiocarbon method that seems to fit quite nicely, uh, especially for the Middle East, where, of course, the Bible has taken place and where most of the uh, accounts, if you will, or myths, however you want to call it, depending on your persuasion, they seem to flow 
and they seem to match very, very nicely. What is interesting in all of this is that if you run across the ocean and if you go into North America, you will also find that that period of around 6,000 to 4,000 years ago was a major milestone also in North America. That was a time where societies became much more integrated. In the old world, we talk about complex societies. We talk about the organizations of the major city-states, again, along the major arteries of the Middle East, the Tigris-Euphrates, the Nile River, and some of the larger drainages in, the, in upper Mesopotamia and into Turkey. And we also see the same sorts of things on a much more reduced scale in North America. So this is the period of the archaic, we call it the archaic tradition, when, um, again, the earliest manifestations of complex development and complex society, albeit not on the same scale as we're seeing in the Middle East, but certainly on a scale in which we can understand that human organization got increasingly complex, that subsistence patterns became much more intricate, that we can identify seasonal procurement strategies and seasonal adaptive strategies in North America during the Archaic. We are seeing, for example, that around four, oh, 1,000 BC or 4,000 or 3,000 years ago, pottery is becoming widespread in North America. So that's a major barometer of an advance, a technological advance. And we are seeing also that uh, demographers, paleodemographers, are people who study um, archaeological sites, their distributions, and make projections on population, start to see uh, sort of a, a major surge, a quantum leap in the number of people that were expanding across North America, that we went from simple hunter and gatherers to grouped organizations, again, not quite as sophisticated as they were in the Middle East, but coming there and getting there. And so we're seeing major events at this period, and this is also a major period of climatic change probably, where uh, certainly in terms of what we know about the archaeological record, we're getting much more crowding. We're starting to see clustering of human groups that largely equate to what we are able to understand with the present, uh, present uh, distribution of physical geography. And, and what I mean by that is, um, again, and I'm going to diverge just a little bit to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. If we look at archaeological sites in North America prior to 6,000 years ago, we are noticing that they are not prolific. They are isolated in various pockets. They're isolated in various parts of the continent, parts of the continent that are related to major episodes of landscape change and transformation. And what I mean by that is this is sort of the latter effects of post-glacial um, environmental change. And what that means is that the ancient rivers and the ancient hills and the ancient topography 
of the new world started to assume its present form around 6,000 years ago. The rivers started to stabilize. They flowed in channels that are largely reconstructable from what we see today, whereas prior to that, in many parts of North America, the glaciers affected the entire nature of the landscape equilibrium so that even the oldest sites are more scarce, not just because there were fewer people there, but because it's much more difficult to recover evidence of their existence because the landscape was so changed. Massive floods, massive reorientations in the uh, equilibrium of the landscape that not only accounts for a, a more sparse archaeological record, but probably also, as I said before, reflects uh, lower population density. So these were turning points in the human condition. In the Middle East, complex societies. In North America and other parts of the world, sort of a stabilization of landscapes that allowed people to schedule human activities and to become more resourceful because they understood the environment better. And the, uh, the extent of environmental change was nowhere near as significant as it was until any other time, until the Industrial Revolution, and of course today when human activity is completely affecting the climate and is causing major overhauls in the ecological balance. That's a story for for another time. But certainly we're starting to see these developments. But in any case, the radiocarbon method was probably the early was definitely the earliest index of change that we could measure. And we start to look at human activities that are now associated with Stone Age technologies. In um, the period prior to five, six thousand years ago, we are looking at the earliest villages in the Middle East. And those are datable by, again, radiocarbon, um, some pot by pottery assemblages, and by the size and composition of settlements at those particular points in time. So we are looking at that, and we're looking at um, a landscape and a human organizational framework that is starting to essentially approach what we're seeing today, as I said before. But dates, the radiocarbon method, as I said, pulled the limit of identifying very simple human activities from seven, 8,000 years ago to 50,000 years ago. And people who study old, uh, old uh, Stone Age Old Stone Age, uh, which is what we call the Paleolithic, versus the New Stone Age, which is the Neolithic, and starts to approach the 6,000-year limit, um, we're starting to see that there are stone tool industries that assume a certain character in different regions of the world. And when we are able to literally look at dates, dates uh, populations of dates that are literally in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years, uh, hundreds of thousands of assays or um, assessments since the 1950s, the convergence becomes extremely striking so that we can look at old Stone Age industries and look at the reach and the temporal and the spatial extent of those occupations with a tremendous amount of clarity. 
And what I'm saying here is that the limits have been pushed back 50, 60,000 years ago. And now what's happened in the past 30 or 40 years um, is this understanding of stable isotope chemistry plus physics has also enhanced not only our ability to look at radiometric dating, but it has also allowed us to look at other types of dating methods once we understand how the world around us works. And um, the types of dating strategies that we look at, uh, let's talk about uh, stable isotopes and and atomic and radiometric types of activities, we can we have looked at, for example, uh, potassium argon dating, which looks at the transformation of potassium of and argon isotopes over a course of time where the radiometric disintegration extends to hundreds of thousands and even millions of years ago. And we find associations of those types of dating patterns with the earliest human or ostensibly human artifact types that are registered in the world, specifically in places like East Africa, South Africa, and now moving ahead into China and into the Arabian Peninsula. We are starting to develop uh, patterns of dating that are showing us the very earliest ostensibly stone tool industries. We're talking about hand axes. We're talking about chopper and chopping tools that the Leakies initially identified in the 1960s. And we're able to date those as well because of potassium argon dating, which is associated with volcanic activity and is is uh, a standard feature of the Rift Valley uh, in Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Kenya, and Tanganyika in East Africa, and give us clear evidence at this point. Of course, it's arguable, uh, I suppose, by by uh, people who are um, not accepting of these and people who believe in, as I said before, God years. Then we are seeing the envelope of human origins being at least arguably pushed back to the period of two, three, four, and five million years ago. Two million years ago uh, being the period that we call the Pleistocene. But if we're looking at a longer tree and a longer series of developments in the human conditions, then we are looking certainly past two million. And into we get into the argument of into the question of speciation and how we track human origins uh, based on the anthropomorphic form, the human form, how it diverged from other bipeds or uh, two-legged creatures. And we get into that entire question of physical hominid evolution and the association that that has with stone tools that originally were questioned in terms of could they be produced only by human types and with, again, an expanding record not only of the dating world but also of the artifact associations as well as, and this is the key, human bones or bipedal bones. Um, And we are starting to look at uh, structural skeletal conditions that 
even conservatively, strongly mimic the present human form. And once we start to get into those questions, the envelope gets pushed back beyond 50,000 years into a much older period. And I will, I will tell you that based on my background and the stuff that I was studying when I first went to graduate school, that was where we were. Now we're in a much more, a much more different place because the radiometric techniques that we have now are not only filling in the time gaps between the 50,000 and the million-year time frames, but we are also getting new methods of looking at uh, dating as well as origins. And we'll get into that discussion after this break. We'll be right back. Don't leave us. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We've been talking about a variety of different types of issues surrounding explanations for the human condition. Uh, and the big issue here for this program is how old is it and how do we know? And what I've been discussing in the previous segments is the convergence of various different types of artifacts and dating methods that seem to be recurrent and seem to define sort of, for lack of a better word, a play, a better concept, a playing field where the convergence of the scientifically demonstrable dating techniques and the evidence for human activity has gotten pushed back 
to about five million years ago in many parts of the in 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 several parts of the world. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here, but certainly that once we push it back into the human origins question that the evolutionists take to heart, um, we are seeing that a lot of the gaps that had been identified or had not been filled in, actually, I should say more appropriately, um, over the past uh, 30, 40, 50 years are now being ironed out and the picture is getting much richer because we're able, again, to cross-correlate the artifact sets and the dates because of uh, a wider variety of dating methods that are now available to us. As I said before, the Bible's situation is something that is really quite nicely recorded and registered by the radiocarbon and the very convergent accounts of the liturgy and of the biblical records and the artifacts. So you have sort of three sets of controls. Um, the, the book itself, the holy book itself, you have the artifact record, and you also have the radiocarbon record, and they, don't, they won't work badly at all. But going farther back than that, the initial uh, radiocarbon, radiometric dating technique, which is, of course, radiocarbon dating, pushed us back to 50,000 years ago. And then um, potassium argon and tephroa chronological dating pushed us back to the early part of the human evolution variant, which is the emergence of uh, Australopithecines, Pithecanthropines, and the various varieties of Homo that keep cropping up now in increasing frequency and in different parts of, of Africa all over the world, all, all over Africa rather, and to other parts of the world moving eastward largely and northward um, and are starting to fill in the gaps of that grand period, say, between five, two million years ago and, and, and um, the tens of thousands of years ago. So one of the interesting methods that has come along recently is what we call trap charge dating. Trap charge dating is an incredible um, ability to look at uh, an incredible tech technology that looks at physics and optical physics um, as a method of dating. And what it is, uh, and optic, uh, optically stimulated luminescence dating, is now a, uh, a dating technology that is about, I would say, roughly 20 years old. And what that does is it looks at not the protons and the neutrons in the atom, it looks at the electrons in the atom. And what it does is essentially it allows you to measure the signal of the configuration of electrons because of cosmic ray um, interferences and uh, circulation in the in the uh, in the light field, they allow you to measure the um, electron configuration be, by um, measuring it in the darkness. Because once the uh, light has disappeared from a sediment complex, it is sealed. And so the electrons are no longer moving, cosmic radiation can no longer affect them, and as a result of that, what you can do is you can literally go in the vicinity of an older archaeological site, stick a tube into the sands or the silts into it uh, in the middle of the night or in a sealed um, tube, and you can absolutely recall. 
uh, take a sample for which the electronic electron signal is frozen. It's frozen in time because it measures the last time that the electrons were moved around by cosmic radiation. Well, once you take a sample like that and you bring it back to the lab, the lab will artificially stimulate it and reconstruct the electron configuration of that time frame. And as a result of that, you can reconstruct that configuration to an indexed and calibrated scale and figure out how long ago that configuration of electrons and those signals in the, in the sediment were recorded. And as a result of that, we now have luminescence techniques, not just from sand and silt, but also from culturally um, uh, registered sediments that, um, that will tell you exactly what, um, what the um, configuration can be. So that you have these enormous signals in a variety of different types of natural sediments and cultural sediments, burnt sediments, along with artifact sets that are demonstrably uh, manufactured by humans that enable you to provide a variety of different types of measures to um, to calibrate and to to register information from um, from the human condition and from the uh, movement of people and the conflation of these types of measuring techniques, artifact sets, evidence for human activity. Uh, from the earlier time frames, and they seem to also continue into the biblical period, so that you can put together periods of activity that range from the earliest evolutionary argument well into the biblical arguments that are all explained by science. And the argument that we posted last week, which was saying the benefits of science, of science are simply that understanding the scientific method and digging deeper is what allows you to come up with these very sophisticated models of understanding the of the development of the human condition in ways that were unimaginable as recently as a decade ago. And these advances in science are allowing us to put together synthetic models of understanding culture and uh, natural events and understanding the map of the world in terms of human activity in ways that are incredibly, incredibly sophisticated and show every sign of improving and becoming more sophisticated as we go on. So that explanations are waiting still to happen and the discovery of whatever we find in terms of linking human events and natural events are all incredibly productive and have tremendous potential for allowing us to understand our world with an increasing level of sophistication and knowledge that is only going to increase exponentially as science moves forward. And that's about it for our presentation today. And we look forward to uh, providing you with even further updates on dating techniques and looking at 
um, developments in the human condition moving forward. So until next time, this is Joe Shilton Ryan saying good evening, and we will see you in a week from today. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.